This is OBG Project's Grand Rounds Live, a podcast of the OBG Project's monthly webinar featuring cutting-edge OB and GYN topics. Our Grand Rounds Live webinar is free for OBG First members. With an OBG First membership, you have access to the webinar slides, handouts, and future Grand Rounds Live webinars. To learn more about membership and other perks of an OBG First membership, go to obgproject.com forward slash get first. Enjoy the webinar. Again, thank the OBG Project and Nancy for this opportunity to present um, on telehealth. As I was mentioning, telehealth is a pretty broad topic. Um, so because of that, in one session, it's hard to capture both the gynecology aspect of what's happening in telehealth as well as the OB. So for the purposes of this talk, we decided to focus on maternity care and OB care in general. Um, so before you talk about telehealth, it's always good to have a primer and talk about some of the basic terminology or some of the basic constructs of telemedicine. So a, a common question that always comes up is telehealth interchangeable with telemedicine or not? And if you look at kind of the taxonomy of what happens in telehealth, telehealth in itself is the overarching concept or the product that can include patient education, patients accessing their own labs, a portal, in, you know, an electronic mechanism where they can interact with you. And telemedicine falls underneath telehealth. And that can be what everybody probably has by now experienced, which is the back and forth in a synchronous fashion with a patient. It could be remote patient monitoring or chronic care management, which is something you see much more often on the internal medicine side rather than OB. And then store and forward. Store and forward is where you capture the clinical data and somebody renders an opinion later. This could be looking at an ultrasound exam. This could be a dermatologist getting the information and looking at the video clip of a lesion on somebody's skin. But that basically gives you a good overview of what telehealth versus telemedicine is. Now, before I dive into the discussion, I just want to quickly run down through some terminology that you'll hear during telemedicine talks so that we're all on the same page. Um, the, you're going to right off the bat hear about synchronous and asynchronous. This is basically talking about how you do your telemedicine interaction. Are you live with a patient interacting back and forth? Or is this perhaps an interprofessional consult where another provider packages up all the clinical information gives it to you, and you render an opinion from it. Originating site is where the patient is located, and this is a crucial component of telemedicine, and, and probably one of the most common questions that we get is, you know, am I supposed to be licensed where I'm sitting, or am I supposed to be licensed where the patient's sitting? And we'll talk about this a little bit later, but what you have to think about in the back of your head is that the Commonwealth where the patient is located is tasked with the protection of that patient. Therefore, that medical board, that community standards is what you need to be abiding by when you're providing telemedicine to somebody who's remotely away from you. Distance side is where you're located. RPM, CCM, we touched on this a little bit, remote patient monitoring or chronic care management by CMS rules. This is somebody who has more than two chronic medical conditions, and you basically sit back and you monitor them when they're at home. It could be monitoring their blood glucose diary. It could be monitoring their blood pressure. It could be interacting with them back and forth. This has its own billing features and revenue cycle features. It's an area that's gaining steam really quickly, but again, mostly on the 
internal medicine side, not so much with OBGYN. The Interstate Medical Licensure Compact. This is an organization that's gaining steam now. When I got into telemedicine, there were only about six states that belong to this. Now the count is over 35. This basically is a collection of states that have come together and said, you know what, I will give licensure by reciprocity to your physician from your state if you vouch for them being in good standing. So the way this works is that, let's say, for example, for me, I live in Utah. If I'm in good standing in Utah as a clinician, I can get what's called a letter of qualification from Utah that says, you know what, Sina Hayeri is in good standing. He practiced here. And I can take that letter to another interstate compact um, member, like let's say Arizona. And instead of going to, through the traditional route of licensure with Arizona, it expedites the process to as quickly as sometimes one or two weeks in terms of getting your license. If you practice medicine, you have to know the Ryan Hate Act and you have to know what the impact on that is. This is referring to writing controlled substances or prescribing controlled substances. There are very specific rules attached to this, specifically the requirements for an in-person visit or an evaluation before you're allowed to write a controlled substance. So this is one you wanna keep an eye on because this has been changing back and forth depending on the public emergency. Um, and you wanna be cognizant of this so you don't get into something ethically dubious with respect to what you're prescribing to the patients. Some of the acronyms you'll hear is ATA, that's the American Telemedicine Association. They have great guidelines online, so questions that will come up, can I just have a NA working in my telemedicine clinic versus an RN? Do I need to have a presenter? Do I need to do this? They have best, best practice guidelines on their website that, uh, that serve as a great reference. Center for Connected Health Policy. This is a wonderful group um, that lives in California. It was started by the state of California to help them years ago with their telehealth activities. And it's basically moved on to become a national organization. And this is for me, my go-to resource when I wanna check the specifics on a, on a state. So I'm, I'll give you the link a little bit later on this, on this talk, but this is a, um, a good resource you can go to and you can select that from a drop-down menu, your state, let's say New Mexico. It'll break down all the rules for Medicaid, Medicare, commercial. It'll tell you if there's parity and all the other rules that you need. And CMS, I know folks know this, but just for the sake of completeness, I put it in there. CMS is Center for Medicare Services. Um, even though in obstetrics and maternity, less than 1% of our patients tend to be Medicare patients, the rules that CMS puts into place often down have a, oftentimes have a trickle-down impact and they get adoption by local Medicaid groups or local Blue Cross Blue Shield products. And because of that, um, we'll refer to the CMS rules here and there. Parity refers to, a lot of times, it's the reimbursement piece of it. If I see a 27-weeker for an MFM consult, should I expect to get paid as though it was in the office versus telemedicine? That's what you'll talk about parity. This is moving on really fast. With parity, what you want to be mindful of is that just because there's parity in a state, doesn't mean that the, there's equivalency on the payment. There's a lot of loopholes around it. So let's say you would get 50 bucks for doing a consult on a patient in person. The parity would say you should be reimbursed for a telehealth visit. A lot of times it doesn't say you should be reimbursed at an equal amount. So you might get 10 bucks for it. So these are things that you wanna be very cognizant about when you're getting into telemedicine. 
B2B or D2B, it's business to business. That's generally, that's what I do for a living. So basically we are a telemedicine company. We sell to a hospital. We sell to a practice that's B2B. B2C or D2C is direct to consumer. Um, and this is where you're going to see a lot of advertisement, a lot of movement on the market. This is where folks are selling directly to the consumer. I'll give you some examples later on. A BAA is a business associate agreement. You have to have this with your vendor, whether it be a video conferencing solution. Um, this is going to make it basically a HIPAA compliant interaction. And Stark, especially for subspecialists, is an important consideration because you want to make sure you're not doing something that's going to be perceived as an unfair advantage when you set up a clinic for a remote community um, and go from there. So let's talk about maternity telehealth. Um, and then this is the part that a lot of us that do telemedicine full-time were chuckling about because when COVID hit, people were talking about, oh my God, telemedicine's the future. Telemedicine's here to stay. And we're like, telemedicine's been here. So for over you know, a decade or so, people have been doing telehealth. Um, probably the best examples of prenatal visits via tele would be the Mayo Clinic model in New York, MultiCare in Washington, University of Utah, and this is not an inclusive, uh, all exhaustive list. This is just some of the examples. And to look at the graphic on the right-hand side, it gives you an idea how folks have been doing um, prenatal visits remotely. This is from the Kaiser Family Foundation. And this shows you how you can replace a lot of the prenatal visits with virtual visits. It gets you better compliance from the patients because now they don't have to worry about the windshield time. It also helps you expand your reach into the community. Postpartum visits naturally lend themselves well to um, telemedicine visits because you can beam into the patient's environment. You can see what the supportive structure is. Um, you can do lactation consultation with telemedicine. You can run your Edinburgh via telemedicine. You can get a lot of information being in the patient's living room rather than have, relying on them to come back to your office. And this matters when you look at the national data only 60% of women show up for postpartum visits. Only 20% of moms know who to call if there's an issue with postpartum period. So because of that, having that availability via telemedicine can have a profound impact on the totality of the care that you provide. And behavioral health without question, um, that's one of the you know, areas that telemedicine has boomed, it's because it's a cognitive specialty. And again, it lends itself well to telemedicine. And I put teleabortion in here because I know that's a topic that right now is front and center with the rule changes in Texas and the upcoming legislation that's coming up in several states. Teleabortion has been in place um, for a while. This obviously is gonna be video conferencing and medical abortion. You know, um, and but the services are out there, and I put that in the maturity slide because that does tie into um, something that we deal with in terms of OB care. On the specialty support, um, this is where telemedicine is gaining the most amount of steam. And the map on the right is one that I just did for SMFM uh, with Andrew Greiner out of Iowa. We basically told, took the total workforce from SMFM that we have in the U.S. and we mapped it out, and we've got a bunch of um, neat heat maps coming up that show the windshield time for the patients. We did another study with the March of Dimes correlating the prematurity data versus MFM presence in the county. But that shows you right there that there are maternity deserts in the US. For example, if you live in an Indian health reservation in the US, based on our data, we know you're gonna spend about six hours driving to see an MFM. 
If you live in Western Colorado, it's inconceivable that you're going to drive five, six hours to see an MFM. As you can see, the Dakotas, Nebraska, Wyoming, these are just empty spaces because there's really no MFM presence. And that maternity desert, again, lends itself well to having a telemedicine presence to really expand that access to care. On the specialty support, for years this has been going on, and it's been predominantly outpatient. It's been a hub and spoke model where a regional perinatal center sitting at the hub starts launching all these spokes and supporting the communities around them. Um, maternal fetal medicine, easy one because you just read the scans, you see the mom on a telemedicine visit, genetic counseling, PD cards. I remember when actually it was a fellow with Nancy at UNC, our pediatric cardiologist would get on a plane and fly out to the coast and some other areas in Carolina and go do echoes and come back. And the examples of this have been well-established. UPMC, the work that they're doing in Pittsburgh, um, they put a good bit of papers out on this demonstrating the value, how many visits, how many hours they've saved the patients. Stork um, with David Adair's group um, in the Southeast, well-established program. I think they at one point they were up to about 15 clinics that they were running. The Angels Network in Arkansas is probably the one that most people have heard about. It's Curtis Lowry's program that was funded by the state that basically set up these spokes all across Arkansas. And then the uh, Children's Hospital of Colorado. Um, they have been in telemedicine, especially in the PD card space, doing a lot of wonderful work. Now, tele-MFM, this is my bread and butter. This is what I live and die every morning doing. Um, as we talked about it, it was set up as a hub and spoke model. So the hub and spoke model, again, outpatient, you set up an MFM clinic one day per week, one day every two weeks. It's tethered to a hub. And the return on investment for this program is to the hub. The hub strategically will set up all these spokes in the communities because if there's a maternal transport to be coming out, they have the established relationship, they'll grab that sick mom. They'll grab that neonatal transport and downstream revenue from the NICU is what pays for the program. This is a good model for the region. It expands access. It's a win-win for both parties, but it has its limitations. One is the staff still has to drive out to that remote community to see somebody. Now, a lot of people are wising up and using local folks for the program and not sending their staff out back and forth. But that's one thing that goes into it. And the second part that you have to be mindful of is this is not an agnostic program. You're going into a community to take the higher acuity cases. So because of that, sometimes you get the perception of, oh, they're here to steal my babies. Um, and if you, you'll hear that um, when you come across this in, in the market. And then there's standalone programs. And this is mostly what we do on our side of the business, which is you come in, a local community says, you know what, I don't have MFM support, help me out. You set up inpatient, you set up outpatient, whatever it may be, your health system agnostic because you're serving the spoke community, not the hub, and you flip the return on investment where more moms will stay in the community and more babies will deliver in the community and you utilize local resources, but inherently as a system makes you more sticky to the client. They both have their advantages. The one on the left is probably more utilized. You'll see that a lot more when you look at tele-MFM models, but the standalone is now popping up a lot um, around the country.
How about OB? Um, and this is part of this discussion on the audience. Where do you use telemedicine and OB? So obviously the one that you'll hear about the most is having an in-person OB program with tele-MFM support. This basically is gonna come in and give you that regional transport center, regional perinatal care center. And what you do is you take a 24 seven OB hospitals program you layer in MFM support, and now you have a turnkey solution for the region so that any sick mom, any sick baby can come in and you have everything you need in one spot to basically take care of that. And it, in essence, this operates at a maternal levels of care three designation when it's done correctly. It cuts down transports out, it increases transports in, it gives you a competitive advantage or in the market versus your you know, other hospitals in the region. And this is what you're gonna see a lot in use in real practice. The other model is tele-OB with on the ground advanced practitioners. So what you'll see now is a small hospital that just have a, has a family practitioner or has um, limited OB resources, you'll get an OB at a hub that via telemedicine will guide the care on that LND, on that maternity unit um, with a midwife or a nurse practitioner or somebody else handling it. And this comes in really handy when you talk about OBED, when you talk about triage. So the local OB, if they're sold, they're not driving back and forth to the hospital and really preserve their longevity by doing so. This can be deployed on the inpatient side. It could be done on the outpatient with advanced practitioners. Um, this decreases the burnout when you get into some of these communities where there's only one OBGYN or two OBGYNs. And it lowers the liability for the facility because now you have a vetted OBGYN that's looking into the case. So it could be as simple as a PPROM rule out, um, whatever it may be. It's instead of the nurse doing a quick little you know, assessment and sending the patient home, the OB can beam in on video, do a full assessment, and then let the mom go, and you're less likely to miss things that were not presented to you during the care of that patient. Um, and then ultrasound only is something else that you'll see in OB. We call this store and forward, even though it's its own animal in radiology, but a lot of um, OBs are now moving towards doing their own ultrasounds in the office. A lot of birthing centers with midwives do ultrasounds in their office because one, it's a patient satisfier, they can get everything in one stop shop, but also it's a revenue generator. Um, you stand to increase the revenue in hard times as it is already by doing that. And in this situation, what you'll notice a lot of OBs will now contract with an MFM or a radiologist to read their ultrasounds, and this is again an example of telemedicine. I may look at a scan, there might be pilectasis. I may not jump on a video feed and talk to the patient back and forth, but you've utilized telemedicine to have somebody who has the expertise to read the scans and give your patient that, um, that, that snapshot. And the, the advantage of this is again, you're decreasing the liability because the liability of the read is gonna fall on the doc that's reading not on the one that's doing it. And it gives you a competitive advantage because you can tell the pregnant individuals in the community that, hey, you can get everything in one place here versus if you go to that practice, they're gonna refer you out to get your imaging out, you know, and so forth.
Um, and then neonatology, this is one that you'll see start popping up soon. Really the use case for teleneo is gonna be your level one, level two nursery more often than not. And this is gonna be a scenario where you have an NNP on the ground or you have a family practitioner or a pediatrician on the ground and they wanna have that neonatology backup in case, God forbid, the kiddo needs to get a line in or needs to be intubated or something else is going on. You're gonna start seeing this a lot more in level threes due to workforce utilization where they'll have a neo sitting on telemedicine and an NPs running on the ground managing the patient. But really this model is designed for ones and twos that it's designed to reduce the kiddos getting sent out because that again is a return on investment for the facility. Um, then there's direct-to-consumer. Um, direct-to-consumer is a whole different animal by itself. And this is basically, um, you have two ways of going about direct-to-consumer. One is to be in the marketplace. You know what? I'm going to spend money on Google advertising. I'm going to spend money on Facebook, whatever it may be. I'm going to get patients that come to me and pay me cash generally. Rarely do you get the rough cycle piece with billing and collecting from uh, from payers, um, but I'm gonna give them my services. This um, is a great tool, um, it's doable. It generally has to be consultative because you have to do something that's cognitive, it can't be too much hands-on, but you have to be mindful of several pitfalls here. One is the community doesn't know that you exist. So for you to exist and offer your services, you have to spend a lot of money on advertising to be in front of them or you have to partner up with somebody that's gonna pitch it out for you and get you out to the patients. So because of that, you gotta find the right partner because doing it from scratch on your own, it's gonna be really hard at a large scale. Yes, in your community, you can do this because you're a known brand and people will find you and do the telemedicine visit. But if you're trying to go statewide or nationally, you wanna find the right partner for this. I'll give you an example. When I got into direct-to-consumer a while ago, I basically went on this platform called Sesame Care. And I used them because I knew they had a wide uh, presence. They had a huge marketing budget to just get us the, the eyeballs so that we can do that. The other part you have to be careful on this is your existing contract. Unless you own your OB practice, um, if you are employed, be very cautious because once you open up that offering, um, you might be are providing services in an area that you're not supposed to be competing with your own employer. So non-competes do factor with this. So if you want to get into this, be very cautious about what your contract is, what is your permission for outside activities, is it really worth the bang for your buck or not? And in terms of brands for this, um, you'll see a lot of brands, hims, hers, that do deal with contraception, deal with UTIs, deal with STDs. There's a big market for this, um, but again, be very cautious with the contract. And then employee benefit is another one. Employee benefit is where you come in and you basically contract with the employer and or a payer, and you say, you know what, provide my services to the employees at no cost to them, but you get your payments from the employer, from the TPA, from the payer. And this one, I'm sure you've heard about it, Maven is a big player in this. Ovia is another one, Wildflower, 
care in the infertility space. There's a bunch of them. Right now, the count, I think, is over 70 companies that are doing this. Um, but again, this is a growing area, especially with some employers with the workforce issues that we're having in the States right now, trying to offer more to get that workforce retention. Um, in this one, if you're going to come in and do it under the umbrella of one of those companies, then it's fine. It's easy. You just basically sign a professional service agreement with them. You get paid as a 1099 as an independent contractor and your life is easy. If you're going to stand something up yourself and go do this, then you got to be very careful because they're, you know, getting the curated member list at the end of the month. So you know how much you're supposed to bill for, whether you're on a PEPM model or fee source service. There's a lot of nuances that go into this and it's, it may sound sexy and great, on on the slide but in practice it's really hard to do a lift to give you an example i have a company that you know we do this employee benefits and we onboarded the beverage distributors uh in the u.s there's a captive that does this and it was 70 companies that came on board which you're going to say all right you know 70 how many lives is that Twenty thousand lives might be easy the nuance here was that these companies existed in 48 states. So now you're looking at providing medical care in 48 states. You have to make sure your licensure is shored up. You have to make sure your malpractice carrier knows about it. So it's a heavy lift that you have to, you have to be mindful of. So again, the easiest path to entry is to partner up with somebody and go in under their umbrella and let them worry about it and not have you do it yourself. But if you decide to lift it, there's a huge amount of upside here infrastructure so you want to do telemedicine what do you need so this is your don't forget list so if there's a slide you want to save this would be one of them that captures all the stuff that you need to really be doing telemedicine at scale as a clinician connectivity is important what is the equipment that i'm going to be using not only at the originating side where the patient's located but also on my side of it you want to make sure that the equipment that you have the software that you have has adequate support. I remember I was vetting a telehealth platform that was killing it in terms of advertising, being the first hit on Google. And I started digging in because you're about to do telemedicine, you know, you're dealing with patients, there's nothing more frustrating than a bad connection and not really nailing the, you know, not having an elegant solution. And they were based out of Philippines. Their customer support was only eight to five, not nights, not weekends. Um, and that becomes a problem because you might want to see a patient on a Saturday at four o'clock in the afternoon. If the system goes down, then you're just basically on the hook waiting till Monday morning till it goes back up. So really look at who your software solution is and what is their support level. Give you an example. So on our side of the business, we do acute care telemedicine, where we are the code blue team for about 50 hospitals. We provide MFM services to about 60 hospitals. For us, we have a five ring policy. If you call in by the fifth ring, your call has to be answered and the problem has to be resolved within two minutes. Why? Because by ACLS rules, every three minutes, you're making a decision. So you're going to make sure that uptime is there. Now, that's a very drastic example because that's acute inpatient care. But again, these things matter. It might be a small detail you may forget about, but you shouldn't forget about it. Consent is crucial. Consent's easy. If you go to the ATA website, if you just simply Google telehealth consent, you're going to see a myriad of examples that come up there. Adapt it to your workflow. The one um, piece I would add to the consent is that there's a huge movement towards SMS messaging. Um, they've relaxed the rules on SMS in terms of 
in communicating back and forth through patient, if that's something you have an interest in getting into, that's where you want to put it in. You want to put it in the consent so that they have the SMS language in there and that you're covered. Protocols, workflow expectations. Um, and this goes both to direct-to-consumer as well as B2B. What you want to do is um, you want to make sure you run that telemedicine clinic the way you would run your own clinic in person. You don't want to have any degradation in the services. If the patients in your office come in, get checked in by an MA or roomed in, and the MA hands you a chart, you want to do the same thing on the telemedicine side. They come in, they get roomed, they're handed you the video feed, they're presented to you. So those are things that you want to be mindful of, making sure you have workflows, you have expectations. The expectation part is huge so that people don't get the wrong idea in terms of, you know what, I was expecting to be here five days a week, 24 seven on call. Well, no, I'm only gonna be here one day a week, I'm gonna do that. These are things that have come up over the years in terms of causing conflict and friction with the remote side, you wanna just work through that. Credentialing and licensure, again, if you're providing care in a state that you're not licensed in, you have to be licensed in that state. This is not something that's, um, that's negotiable. It's a well-established um, practice. And be careful. I had two MFMs that I recruited from a computing platform. And the reason they left the platform was that platform was pitching everything under the umbrella of patient education. And because of that, claiming that there was no licensure needed, that is categorically false. And the reason it's categorically false is all of us as clinicians know that it's a very blurred line between patient education and practice of medicine. So because of that, it's just better to be kosher and just make sure that you have the licensure in that state. The credentialing part applies to inpatient. So if you're ever gonna do inpatient telemedicine, you should be credentialed at the facility you're providing the telemedicine to, unless it's an interprofessional consult. If you're just giving opinion or advice to another clinician, then you're okay, you don't need that, but generally credential and licensure at the originating site is required. And things that you wanna think about is, where am I gonna document? How am I gonna document? It's very easy to do telemedicine, but where's the note gonna be? Um, and because of that, that's something you wanna vet. Um, and then compensation, as we talked about parity, reimbursement, these are things that you wanna get out of the upfront. So those are the things that I would look at and address before you get into any kind of a telemedicine endeavor, whether it be B2B or B2C. Now, website mannerism. This is a term that is coming up a lot more now. And this is basically what are the do's and the don'ts when you do telemedicine. So a couple of things you wanna do. You never wanna do telemedicine on a phone because what you have a habit of doing is your hand starts trailing off, it moves back and forth. And on the other side, there's a lot of movement and it becomes distracting for the patient. So always having, and I'll show you, a stand like this where you put in the iPad or your device to be stationary is a good um, thing to do. Um, you wanna make sure that you're centered on the frame. Lighting, there's a lot of lighting products that you can put behind the screen that shine a light on your face that give you that crisp, clear image. Um, you wanna avoid anything in the background that is interesting, just very generic, pretty background. So the patient's focus is on you. They're not wondering off, oh, wow, what is that diploma? Where did they graduate from? What is that? You wanna keep the focus on you the whole time. Um, you wanna make sure that one, the patient is in an environment they can have the medical discussion with you. Just say, hey, this is about to get this started. 
Um, and also you want to make sure there's nobody in your room that can basically walk back and forth because the patient's about to disclose some confidential information and it's going to jeopardize that trust they have in you if some random person walks behind the scenes, you know, on you. Um, you always want to confirm where the patient's location is. This is a habit that I still have. Unless I'm doing telemedicine in a hospital where I know the patient's located, if I'm doing B2C to direct to consumer, I will still ask, hey, where are you located today? And just so I can hear that that's a state that I'm licensed in, just to make sure I'm not putting myself in a bind there. Um, don't ask, uh, don't be afraid to ask the patient to arrange things or do things. I, best example I have is I had a preconception consult. This was from Colorado and the surrogates wanted the patient to see me and I get on there and she, I'm not kidding with you, she literally was walking around the kitchen making herself a salad and then stopping and eating with me. I'm like, hey, you know what? With all due respect, do you mind just sitting down for a second, not eating so we just have an interaction? Don't be afraid to ask. I mean, do you wanna feel comfortable with the interaction as much as they're feeling comfortable with you? Um, and dress professionally. This is one that um, on our company, we have something called the Breaking Through the Screen Protocol. It's an ACGME program. We make all the physicians go through this before they do the first telemedicine visit. And this is one of the parts is that, listen, look the part. If you dress a certain way in the office, whether it be scrubs, whether it may be, do the same thing just because you're sitting at home and doing telemedicine doesn't mean you can wear shorts and t-shirt don't do it from the car that generally is a bad practice altogether um you don't want the patient seeing your headrest behind you uh, these are just little things that we talk about you know it, it's the it's the etiquette of doing telemedicine on a larger scale um the boring stuff and this is what i'm going to wrap it up with these are good resources again for you to save um, know your state rules. So that's the website for the Center for Connected Health Policy. Again, if you're going to be in telemedicine, this is a must. You have to bookmark this and have this website and go play with it. Put in your state, put in a, put in a state that you might be interested in and just basically on the right-hand side, go down and look at the rules and become familiar with it. If questions come up, email me and I'll gladly help you out. The American Telemedicine Association, this is more for guidelines. If you need some best practices, recommendations, this is where you can go to. Uh, and again, the hint here is that it's supposed to mimic what you do in person. Um, so make sure that you, know, you don't give a degraded product on telemedicine. Pick the right technology partner. Not all platforms are created equal. Pricing might be better on one solution, but guess what? It's going to be a horrendous scenario if it goes down or if it doesn't have the quality. And actually now it's becoming a lot easier because a lot of the EHR platforms, Athena, Epic, um, they have telemedicine built in. So if you're in the traditional setting, you might just be able to utilize that and get away from all the headaches because those folks have a lot of redundancy built in and a lot of reliability. Um, if you're setting this up yourself, if you're an MFM, setting up a tele-MFM clinic, or if you're getting into something that's kind of new, um, make sure you have BAA so you can get the HIPAA compliant piece out of the way. Make sure you have indemnity clauses that are vetted. And in general, it's good to have a legal eagle, kind of a good person that understands telemedicine, understands the rules and regulations to overlook the process and make sure you don't put yourself in a bad situation. For subspecialists, the thing you want to be mindful of is not getting into a stark situation because your competitor can raise a red flag and say, hey, this guy's offering tele-MFM services in this community they're cheap, that's a stark violation and it can cause a lot of headaches for you, that's not worth it. And lastly, if you're getting started in telemedicine, 
Um, the healthsectorcouncil.org, again, is another resource. There's a lot of them. AMA actually has been putting a lot of um, information out there that are useful, but that's one that I've you know, usually relied on um, as a good resource. And with that said, um, I will stop here. And again, much, much thanks to the OBG project um, for giving me this opportunity. I'm at your service if there's any questions I can answer. And Nancy, Jonathan, I don't see any questions so far. So if you see anything on your end, you can let me know. No, I don't think we have any uh, questions from the uh, from the audience. Um, let me take a quick look. And we do have a question from uh, Sue. What do you expect the future uh, holds for telemedicine? Ah, oh, that's an excellent question. Um, so, when you think about telemedicine, again, it's good to bifurcate it into the direct to business, direct to consumer um, world. On the direct-to-business, I do think the future of telemedicine is hospital at home. It's the taking the acute care to the home setting. Again, not so much applicable to all world, what we're doing on the OBGYN side, but definitely on the chronic care, on the acutely ill, on the internal medicine side. I think for those of us that are in telehealth, we see that as the area with the biggest potential. On the direct-to-consumer part, I do think that the best potential there is going to be digital therapeutics. Um, I think that's an area that's untapped. There's only, I think, about a dozen products that are FDA-approved for this. I do think with the advent of technology, telemedicine, AI, digital therapeutics are going to be a big area that you're going to see um, the field expand into. Sina, it's Nancy. Can you hear me? Yeah, here you find that. Great. Oh, excellent. Great. Um, so what sort of monitoring equipment at home for patients receiving the ongoing prenatal care, as you described it, where uh, you alternate inpatient visits and outpatient visits? Um, it was the Kaiser Family Health um, uh, yeah. uh, one that you gave. Um, what sort of things do you recommend consideration uh, when you're providing this? I'm thinking uh, blood pressure cuffs or scales or, you know, what, what, what kind of things do you recommend setting up in that regard? Absolutely. So the best way to go about this is to look at the RPM space and the chronic care management space. There are a lot of affordable, elegant solutions that will send a scale, a blood pressure cuff, and a pulse socks that are all Bluetooth enabled to the patient's house. And what will happen is every time the patient uses any of those peripherals, it will feed it into the dashboard so you have everything in one place for your nurses or yourself to evaluate. An area this is expanding into now is fetal monitors. Um, there is about seven vendors right now that are at each other's throats um, trying to get FDA approval. 
um, these will send the fetal heart rate monitor at home so that you can actually have the mom do the fetal heart tones and you look at it. I think the rate limiting step there is they're all relegated to quick little blurbs of fetal heart. Most of us in this space want to see NST enabled. And I think that's going to come up by Q2 of 2022. But that's another peripheral that's helping. The other thing that we do, um, and this is an impactful one, is we do a lot of fair bit of GDM at home. And with gestational diabetes, when you provide that Bluetooth-enabled glucometer at the patient's home, when you provide the standardized teaching at home, you can take the cost of GDM management at home from around 6700 per episode for the total pregnancy down to about 1700 because wow. you know yeah that, that, that's where the impact comes from but those are so at a minimum you nailed it it's going to be the blood pressure cuff and a scale if you want to up it up a little bit you can get the fetal heart tones at home you want to go up a little bit higher then you can actually get glucometers and a bunch of other stuff great thank you Sina. there's a question mm -hmm. from one of the uh, audience members um who thanks you for a very interesting presentation mm -hmm. um but the um, questioner is wondering if the fees and charges for a telemedicine consult would be the same as a medical consultation in person no it, it differs and uh, and i'll give you a real life example when i joined access physicians um this is about four years ago before COVID and all that we had to figure out the comp models for our MFMs, for our providers. And that's when it was kind of an eye-opener for them. On the internal medicine side, on an RVU model, the, <clears throat> those folks run in the 20s, $20 per RVU kind of a range, whereas MFM runs in the 70s as the national median. So what happens is that it is a part that we've had to be really creative about is some of the OB, uh, GYN subspecialists definitely garner higher payments for their consults and everything, whereas internal medicine doesn't, and the market's used to it. So when you do the acute care telemedicine, you have to adapt your pricing to what medicine does. So the hospitals get a sticker shock. On the B2C part, no, the B2C part, you just set your own price. Um, and that one, the market accepts it pretty well. So I can tell you like an MFM consult on the marketplace, you can get it for about 100, 150, which will resonate well with a couple that's underinsured or it's self-pay. Because a couple of things that happens in the MFM world right now is if an OB sends a patient to me, a lot of times by routine, we're gonna do a scan and a consult. So that patient's gonna get charged a 76805, a 99203, it starts adding up really quickly. Whereas if they do a direct-to-consumer option, their OB can do the growth in the office, can do the scan in the office, and keep it as their bundle, and they come to see you for a flat, small fee and get their MFM consult. This is why for the underinsured, for the self-patients, self-pay patients, it does matter a lot, and that pricing could be a little bit higher than the internal medicine. Um, counterparts, but it's still, it makes a big impact for them. So you're not going to get too much resistance on that front. I don't know if that answered the question or not, but it's something that we think about regularly. Yeah, I, th I think that's a great answer. Um, another question that I have is recent publications report that patient, that, that there's a patient preference for in-person visits versus telehealth visits. You've actually been active on social media um, uh, discussing these um, Mm -hmm. uh, can you comment how to overcome this with patients? Yeah, so a couple of things. One is I think there is a misconception that telemedicine is here to replace inpatient care. And that is categorically false. Nobody that's operating at scale in telemedicine 
comes in and says, I'm here to replace you. No, telemedicine is here to augment the inpatient care or to increase the access or fill in the gaps for inpatient care. So my answer to that would be number one, let's get the motivation correct. The motivation of telemedicine is not to come in and kick you out of your office and brick and mortar operation. We're just here to fill in the gap. The second part is on the telemedicine front, and we do this as part of our onboarding of physicians when we do the breaking through the screen. We always say, listen, if you are at 100% in person, sitting down to the patient, you know, really connecting with them and all that, in telemedicine, you have to be at 150%. And this is why the website mannerism matters because you have to come above and beyond because you have a lot of naysayers, a lot of anxiety, a lot of skeptical, attitudes that come into it. So what, what matters? What matters is when I'm seeing you on telemedicine, I'm doing this. I'm looking directly to the camera. You don't see me doing that. I'm not sitting here typing in my EHR. Yes, you might have to spend extra 10 minutes documenting after the fact, but when you're talking to that patient, eye contact, that's paramount. No distractions, D taking as much time as they need, not rushing them. That's how you win their hearts and minds, and you really show the value of the interaction on telemedicine. Um, but those are the things that go into it. Great. Um, if anybody else has any questions, please do enter them in the uh, Q&A um, section on the platform. I do have another um, question for you, Sina, and I've provided a good deal of telehealth uh, um, during the pandemic, um, but uh, one of the things that we've talked a lot about and in a very rural state in North Carolina uh, is the following. There are, of course, huge advantages of you've, as you've kind of outlined very well today in terms of patient transportation, time away from work, or their needs to get childcare uh, coverage if they uh, are from home. Um, th these are huge advantages, but there are also issues with disparities in access to reliable internet or internet-enabled devices. Um, can you comment on potential solutions to this in order to expand uh, telehealth to um, uh, more disadvantaged communities? Yeah, 100%. A fair bit of uh, the discussion we had at the, at the HPAC committee at SMFM was surrounding this. I think um, if you truly want to expand care, you have to be a proponent of audio-only telemedicine. Um, a lot of the CMS criteria after the public health emergency ends is going to require you to have a video visit, not an audio-only visit. I think audio-only without question is going to change that access to care. The second part is your technology solution. So when you talk about the rural areas, 100%, not everybody has access to broadband. So you want to pick a tech solution that operates on a 4G signal. Um, and I don't want to give names because I don't want to appear like I'm endorsing one versus the other, but there are video conferencing telehealth solutions that will operate at a low bandwidth setting. And that's why I want to pick one of them because the end user, your patient, can actually connect with you in a meaningful way and have a good connectivity. The third part of it is removing barriers to access. And this is something we harp on. You don't want something that requires a patient to download an app. You don't want something that's gonna become a barrier to patient engaging you. So what do we do on our side of it? On our side, we do a couple of things. One is we consent every patient for SMS messaging so that we can text with them back and forth. Not too much sensitive stuff, but just so you can touch base with them and make sure you know how they're doing and everything. The second part of it is we just send a very short link 
the patient clicks on it, and then within the browser, it opens up a video conferencing solution so that they're not downloading apps, they're not getting username passwords and everything else. Those are meaningful ways of basically increasing the access to care and dropping those barriers to engagement.